The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good day, everyone. This is Joe Schuldenrein welcoming you to another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, today's topic is one that I think will be of grand interest to a lot of people out there, a lot of the listeners. Uh, we will be discussing two uh, topics that have not often been overlapped together. One is uh, Egyptian archaeology, and we will be doing a number of programs on that topic because it's so widely uh, discussed in people who are looking at civilizations. And we are also going to talk about uh, maritime archaeology, which we have not discussed to date. And we will be looking at maritime uh, archaeology and Egyptian archaeology insofar as they intersect. And our guests are experts in these fields. My first guest is Dr. Cheryl Ward, who is a maritime archaeology and currently directs the Center for Archaeology and Anthropology at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. She holds a master's and Ph.D. in anthropology from Texas A&M University and a master's degree in bioarchaeology from the University of London's Institute of Archaeology. She is a principal investigator for maritime artifacts at the Pharaonic port at Wadi Goasis on the Red Sea in Egypt, and recently reconstructed and sailed in an ancient Egyptian seagoing ship. She has been involved in a variety of projects involving uh, maritime archaeology, including one on the Black Sea, she has acted as ship reconstructor in the excavation of the world's oldest planked boats at Abydos, Egypt, and has directed an underwater archaeological survey off the coast of Turkey in the region where Roman pirates operated and were later settled. In addition, she has directed excavation of 18th century Sadana Islands, the Sadana Island shipwreck in Egypt's Red Sea with its cargo of coffee, coconuts, and frankincense. Uh, Dr. Ward, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. And my second guest is Dr. Catherine Bard, who is a professor of archaeology at Boston University. She received her bachelor's degree from Connecticut College in 1968, a master's degree from Yale University, and uh, received a master's degree um, from the University of Toronto, and her Ph.D. from the University of Toronto as well. In the course of her career, 
She has conducted field investigations at Egypt, created uh, dynastic settlements in a variety of locations, and in Ethiopia. She has worked for 20 years in northeastern Africa. Dr. Bard has also authored and co-authored numerous books and uh, has written numerous articles as well. And I am, well, I am excited to have you at the program as well. Thank you. Thank you. Let me start by uh, discussing this uh, co- cooperation that the two of you have initiated in the uh, exploration and the reconstruction of, of the boat. How did the two of you get together and brought together your, your expertise, one in archaeology and one in maritime archaeology, let's say terrestrial archaeology and maritime archaeology? Uh, Dr. Bard, if you wouldn't mind. Well, the project is really a joint project between Boston University and the University of Naples, L'Orientale in Italy. And uh, Rodolfo Fatovich, who is a professor there, is co-director of the excavations at Mersawati Gawasis with me. And we started excavating, we, we started exploring the site in 2001. Um, we really didn't find all that much there until 2004 when the first cave was located, first man-made cave. And shortly thereafter, we began finding ship timbers, and we realized that we needed a maritime archaeologist, and hence we called on Dr. Ward to offer her expertise and work with us. So you had preliminary indications, obviously, on a variety of different uh, types of artifact discoveries, including what you had found in these man-made caves. How did you get to the caves in the first place? The first cave was found on Christmas morning, 2004. I took some workmen up to the slope of the fossil coral terrace. I had them start shoveling away sand, and in less than an hour, a hole appeared in the wall of this fossil coral terrace, and that turned out to be the first man-made cave, which I thought was a tomb at first, but that was not the case. And how did you find that, and what did you find, and how did you reach your conclusions? We shovel more sand away, cleared away the entrance to this cave, and then started excavating uh, on the floor of the cave and cataloging and recording what we found there. And it turned out really to be a storeroom, not a tomb. And what did you? And so you got uh, obviously pretty early indications that there was something associated with ships and maritime activities at that location. How did you uh, discover that it was in fact? Uh, go ahead, please. We knew long before this that the site was associated with maritime activities because an Egyptian archaeologist, uh, Egyptologist, Abdel Monam Syed, had been excavating there in the 1970s, and he found textual evidence of the site used as a port to the land of Punt. Which is where exactly? I understand it's not precisely identified. It's not precisely identified, no, but given the materials that the ancient Egyptians acquired from Punt, it's probably located somewhere in what is today eastern Sudan uh, and Eritrea. So with on the basis of what you discovered at that initial phase, I mean, you obviously knew what you were, in a sense, going to find. You had a high expectation for finding it. You brought along Dr. Ward. and uh, um, Dr. Actually, w- we didn't have any high expectations at oh, all. Oh, you we didn't? Thought, no, we okay. thought we'd be at the site for maybe two, three field seasons cataloging, uh, recording pottery. And it was really the find of the first cave 
in 2004 that changed everything. So what was the assemblage, if you could go into more detail, what the assemblage was that, that actually pointed you in the direction of, of where you ultimately went with, uh, with coordinating a maritime archaeological exploration? Well, a few days after we found Cave 1, Chiara Zazzaro, an Italian maritime archaeologist, found the entrance to the second cave, which was much larger, and at that entrance were placed two steering or blades. And at that point, we knew we needed to have some expertise in maritime archaeology. And so you made the call to Dr. Ward at that point? Well, not from Egypt, no. That would be no, difficult. No, <laughs> no I'm um, talking about generically. But shortly, generically, shortly but... thereafter when, we got, when I got home, yes. And let's, let me turn to you, Dr. Ward. So you're, uh, you had been working on a variety of other projects, I assume, and you have this expertise that you cultivated through your uh, education and through your experience. And uh, how did you feel about doing that, and what was your approach when you initially got involved in the project? Uh, this is one of the most exciting finds I could ever have imagined in my life. Um, I had begun looking at ancient Egyptian boats my first year in graduate school, and that was nearly 30 years ago. The, the ancient Egyptians, of course, we know a lot about them, not only because they wrote and told us about it, but because they made pictures of it, they made models of it, and in the case of some of their most wealthy rulers, they even buried full-size boats. And so ancient Egypt actually has the largest, uh, most ancient assemblage of watercraft in the world, and most of them are beside the Nile. And so we know a lot about riverboats, but everybody always wants to know about um, seagoing boats and how you went to go visit people that you wanted lovely things from, like cedar, which is what they used to build uh, their finest ships, um, both on the Nile and on the Red Sea, as it turns out. And the site at Mersa Goasis, as uh, Dr. Bard mentioned, is one that had been very interesting to all of us in the maritime world um, since the discovery in the late 1970s of anchors and a whole story about how people brought boats from the Nile to be built, uh, rebuilt, reassembled, actually, um, at this, this anchorage, at this port, and then sailed off to Punt. And we have this fantastic uh, relief um, um, that was uh, in... Uh, Pharaoh Hatshepsut's temple that actually illustrates a journey very similar to that. But what we have was about 500 years earlier at Goasis. I had even gone to Mersa Goasis uh, on the first underwater archaeological survey in Egypt that we ever did um, back in the early 90s and looked underwater for uh, any remains of shipwrecks, and all we found was an iron anchor from the 1800s. So when um, Catherine got in touch, it was just tremendously exciting she had um, cedar of Lebanon uh, plank fragments to describe and photographs of what were quite clearly um, the steering gear for a massive ship. And the parts that ended up being found there were just the ones that were needed to understand a lot about how these ships were built and sailed. Now, the stela and the engravings, uh, have for, uh, I imagine, for quite a while provided very strong indications that there was um, a fairly sophisticated, I would imagine, um, boat and maritime-related operation in Egypt. Um, before you guys started your work, how much had been done in this area? 
You well, mean on Egyptian exploration? Um, the, yeah, er, these Egyptian let's, expeditions. Let's call Egyptian seafaring excavations or Egyptian seafaring what was known at that point. Nothing. <laughs> well, we do it's know from texts. We do know from texts that um, the Egyptians sent uh, ships to Byblos in the Old Kingdom. We also know from the uh, funerary monuments of King Sahura of the Fifth Dynasty, um, who ruled about 2500 BC, that he sent a seafaring expedition to Punt. But we, so we we do have information from texts. Um, about these expeditions, but um, we really didn't have the actual physical remains of seafaring ships. And you had an idea of what, uh, sort of a general idea of what they presumably looked like from the engravings, correct? Well, the engravings show a side view of a ship, Mm -hmm. and if you can imagine, that's, you know, it gives you some information, but not a lot. And so um, the construction of these ships, how they were, how these planks were held together, what their internal structure was like, did they have any reinforcing frames or ribs, what size were they, what were they made out of, all these things were debated tremendously by people in the long years before we actually had any evidence of what the physical construction was. And my approach has always been to start with the physical aspect, to look at the boats that we have, and then to build out from there and to make suggestions about what might be based on what, what we actually knew rather than, for instance, to take a Mediterranean style of shipbuilding and just say, oh, this is how the Egyptians had to do it because this is what we know. And so it was a very exciting um, period to actually be a part of the excavation um, led by um, – Dr. Bard and Professor Fadovich, and to begin to uncover these first timbers that actually tell the story about a, a tremendous story of where the resources were acquired, how they were put together, how that connects to the past, how it leads into the future, and how they were able to build boats that could sail and make round trips of at least 1,500 miles um, more than 4,000 years ago. Cheryl, Cheryl, didn't also the excavations of some of the timbers at um, the harbor site help you to calculate the dimensions of these ships? Well, um, they did. One of the things that was found, as as Catherine mentioned um, first, was a pair of steering oars or quarter rudders, as we call them. If you've ever been in a canoe or paddled a boat, you know how when the water comes, you just turn the paddle, and that causes your vessel to turn. We had the same thing. Um, except on a much larger scale with this discovery that was made. These are the blades of steering oars, and they were rotten. They had, were so eaten through with shipworm, which is um, a, uh, the larva of a marine mollusk, that they had had to be repaired en route by the ancient Egyptians, and they were, they were just rotten where they'd been in the water. So we knew they'd been in the water a long time, so we knew they were used. They weren't just there for show or could be interpreted as anything else. And these were two meters long, which means that the whole steering oar itself had to be about five meters long if we could count on some of the proportions from looking at the ancient reliefs. We're going to have to, excuse me, we're going to have to take a break right now, but we will be back and continue our discussion on the reconstruction of this magnificent ship after these words. News. 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 News.
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back and we're discussing a very unique topic, the sort of convergence of maritime archaeology and Egyptian archaeology. And ultimately, this has produced one of the most singular um, reconstructions of a, a shipping vessel um, that is associated with Pharaonic Egypt and the cave excavations and the initiative that led to the incorporation of maritime archaeology into this venture was largely the product of work that uh, Dr. Catherine Bard has undertaken. And Dr. Bard, you discussed earlier a little bit about the discovery of, of the uh, man-made caves. I was wondering if you could give us a little bit more information about what was found in the caves and the cave complexes. Well, the caves were used for storage uh, after seafaring expeditions. Um, the most amazing cave is Cave 5, uh, and they're all numbered in terms of the sequence in which we found them. And at the rear of Cave 5 are coils of papyrus rope that had been brought from the Nile Valley used for riggings on ships. And they were just placed 
in the rear of the cave at the end of an expedition, possibly with the intent to be used on a future expedition. Well, that never happened. Okay. And what else did you find? You Obviously, there's a number of these uh, cave complexes. I mean, the preservation of this rope is obviously very good because caves are excellent for preservation. We have found... Um, not only these caves, but also evidence of where expeditions camped. We found the work areas where stone tools and some pottery was made. Um, we found ovens and hearths where cooking took place. And we've even found actual food that had been brought to the harbor from the Nile Valley. And what was the preservation of that like, the food itself? Well, you- the um, the grains of emmer wheat that were brought from the Nile Valley to make bread, they had all been eaten away by small insects, but uh, the hulls were still there. Um, We also uh, excavated evidence of a kind of barley paste that had been charred and then set in plaster. Um, We have evidence of fish that they were fishing for in the harbor. Um, The bones had been left in hearths there at the site. So um, a lot of evidence of what they were doing at the harbor outside of the caves as well. And if I could just um, interject, one of the other things that we found have been pieces of ship timbers because what happened was when they came back from these journeys, they took the ships apart. The cedar that was used to build the ships was really valuable, we think, and they couldn't reuse the planks because they were rotten for about two inches or five centimeters on the outside, but they could clean those off. But some of them were just in bad shape, and they used those as kind of portable barbecue pits. And mm-hmm. some of them even have seeds and um, remains of fish and things on them. It's pretty funny to see because you can just imagine, okay, it's the end of the day, let's have a fire, it's kind of cold. And you can imagine the people there, they've worked all day, and they're sitting there in this beautiful setting beside a lagoon, and there's a fire burning behind them that smells like God's breath because it's cedar <laughs> and it has an amazing, right. wonderful smell. But there's um, four or five of those that, that we recorded during the excavations. And the harbor area was one that um, some of the excavations that were done there by the terrestrial archaeologists took them out into the bottom of the harbor where they found things like anchors, where they found an area where the side of the harbor was reinforced to make it harder for loading and unloading to be easier. And they've just added so much to our understanding of what life was like in the Red Sea so long ago. Uh, Catherine, let me get back to you for a minute. How far away were the caves from the harbor? Well, today the the caves are considerably inland, about 750 meters inland from the present-day shoreline. But 4,000 years ago, the two geologists who worked with us there, coastal geologists, uh, Chris Hine and Duncan Fitzgerald, um, they have evidence that several thousand years ago there was a large sheltered embayment, which was perfect for constructing these ships and setting sail out into the Red Sea. All okay. filled in by a wadi silts since then. So this would go along with uh, the changing shape of the shoreline in response to rising sea level to some degree. So they were able to reconstruct the uh, the landscape at the time. And uh, so you have... Yes, yes, they reconstructed the ancient um, lagoon and it happened to be right next to or above the beach um, 
well, below, sorry, below the beach from where the caves were located, which explains why the caves are located so far inland today. Right, right. Okay. Let me get back to uh, something you said, Cheryl. Um, you had talked about the, the uh, identifying a variety of different planks. My understanding is that these ships were put together piece by piece, sort of like a crossword, uh, not a crossword puzzle, like a puzzle with each plank having its, its mate and, and the, they were joined um, in sort of a sequential manner. Uh, could you tell us a little bit of what actual evidence, what was the actual uh, residual planks, the residual planks and the components of the actual ship that you were, you were able to find within the caves? Well, um, there were several areas where we actually found the timbers, and the ancient Egyptians were a very thrifty people, and they recycled and they reused. This isn't a new concept, and especially in an area where there weren't big trees, some of the things that they did with the planks of ships that had been on voyages uh, in the past and were probably stored in these galleries or caves um, was to use them to reinforce entryways um, something that's common to a lot of people is like cartoon mine entrances like Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner, if you think about what those <laughs> look like. That's what the doorways to a lot of these caves looks like, except the wood is cedar of Lebanon with shipworm in it that are full-size planks. Um, some of them have been cut off. They've got deck planks shoved in where the curvature of the plank didn't allow them to do that. But what the Egyptians did was to, exactly as you said, make kind of a jigsaw puzzle of pieces that would only fit together in one way. They interlocked along their edges, and these are very, very thick planks. These planks, and this is hard to put your mind around a little bit, but these planks are between 8 and 12 inches thick. Wow. What is also pretty amazing about these planks and all of the ship timbers is that the ships were built on a, a um, in, in a shipbuilding yard in Upper Egypt on the Niles, and the ships were d- disassembled and taken across the desert about a hundred miles to the exactly. harbor site. Yeah, and in order to do that, because their only kind of means of transport today, when we built the the uh, reconstruction of the ship, we picked it up with a crane and put it on the back of a flatbed truck. But the Egyptians couldn't do that 4,000 years ago. So they would build the ship on the Nile, as Catherine said, mark it and take it apart, and then put them back together after taking them across the desert. And it was humans and donkeys that would take them across the desert. And so when I was designing the ship and thinking about this, you don't want any planks that are too large. And so although we have evidence that their ancient Egyptians, even at the time of the builder of the Great Pyramid, Cheops or Khufu, the shortest plank in a couple of boats that he buried um, outside the pyramid there, um, the shortest plank was 23 feet long. Um, uh, that was longer than our longest one that we have because ours had to be carried a lot further dif- distance by individuals. So I planned ours to be about three to three and a half meters or between about 10 and 14 feet long at the most so that people could manipulate them so that they could be carried between two donkeys, for example. And wow. Yeah, so, we found full-size timbers. And so what I did was to start with the physical evidence from Gawasis that was excavated by the team of archaeologists there and to build out from that. And it was an amazing coincidence um, because the 
a French production team that made all this possible in terms of the reconstruction um, took us to the uh, Temple of Hatshepsut at Dar al-Bahri, and we were able to get up close and personal with the boat relief. And there were actually um, the same pieces that we found and the same parts were visible, and they all turned out to be a 1 to 10 match. Now, that's completely coincidental, but it all worked, and it was also proportional with some of the river boats that I had worked on from the same period. And so that was a very important factor guiding the decision to have the dimensions of the planks the way they were and to work with the shapes the way we did. So um, you basically, are, am I correct in inferring that you had some kind of a prototype for uh, pursuing this reconstruction? We had steering oars. We had very important planks that gave an indication of the curvature at, for instance, the water line where it touched the keel. We had beams and the ends of beams. We had oars and other small parts of the ship. And all of these turned out to be relatively proportional, as I said, to the release of the Queen Hatshepsut and also to a set of river boats that's a little bit later than this site, but also from the Middle Kingdom, um, called the Dashur boats. And those boats were 10 meters long. So the prototype that I used for the shape of the hull was that river boat and doubled the length of it to make it large enough. And we pulled the ends of it up just a little bit, and it fit exactly on that side view of the um, expedition to Punt by Hatshepsut. So it's not anything but a reconstruction. Reconstruction means you make your best guess. It's a floating hypothesis. It's not a replica by any means because we don't have any actual Egyptian hulls. But other discoveries that have been made since then at other sites in the Red Sea kind of are, are, are reinforcing our decisions and making me much more comfortable with having modeled it on the proportions of riverboats. <laughs> And I'm going to have to take another break here, but we will be back with our fascinating story of archaeology and maritime archaeology after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune into On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. It connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. 
Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most, and by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, we're back with our very special guests, Dr. Catherine Bard and Dr. Cheryl Ward, who have collaborated on a very fascinating project that has contributed very, very significantly to our understanding of the shipbuilding industry in Pharaonic Egypt. And, uh, Catherine Bard just sort of slipped in a very intriguing concept at the break, and and she said basically that the only reason this was done was because the pharaoh decreed it. Catherine, why don't you expound a little bit on that and how you got that information and how carefully you were able to uh, make these interpretations? Um, How did you get to that point where you, you, you understand that? Well, there wasn't a Congress that made laws in ancient Egypt, so rule was by decree of the king, and um, we have inscriptions at the harbor site about uh, different kings sending their officials uh, on these expeditions to Punt and also a place called Biapunt, which means the mine of Punt, wherever that was located. So were there actually engravings in Stila that in the vicinity of of the site itself that indicated what was going on here that provided you with some critical information in terms of geography or just in terms of what was actually going on, what the processes were, et cetera? The Stila at the harbor site um, were of different kinds, but there were expedition texts which gave us information that these uh, expeditions were going to the place called Punt, also known as a God's Land, and more frequently to a place called the Mines of Punt. Okay. Which was probably an inland area, and that from Punt, from the harbor where they were sailing to, and that may have been the location of some gold mines. And with all right, right, and with all that information, you would think that by this point they would have identified the location of Punt with (laughs) with with the textual evidence and with all the confirming archaeological evidence. But you still really don't have a clear picture of where this was. Well, we know where the materials were located um, that they brought back from Punt. Right, right. And we also have pottery from different areas of both sides of the southern Red Sea now that have been pottery that we've excavated at Mursawadi Gawazis. So we have a clearer idea of where Punt was located 
but has anyone found evidence of Punt? No, I think this has to do with problems of that part of the world. Yeah. Right, of course. Some of the earliest archaeology in terms of the connection with um, um, a more northern group of civilizations um, is, I believe, from the 600s B.C. There's some Greek pottery um, that has been discovered in some caves further to the south. Again, caves <laughs> down in the Red Sea. But um, you also have to think these expeditions didn't take place every year. Um, if it was a ordinary king, maybe he went once to Punt. Um, maybe some kings went two or three times. The work at the site that has been done by the epigraphers there and by Dr. Barden, Dr. Fadovich, has been to show that there were actually quite a few expeditions that nobody knew about from Nile um, textual evidence before. And so this is something that for me as a maritime archaeologist is really exciting because there's also another site, actually two sites, further north in the Red Sea that the French have been excavating now um, that add to our understanding of a much more intense uh, relationship with the Red Sea than had been able to be proved before. Um, there were lots of things like gold jewelry, uh, seashells that came from the Red Seas or starfish and things like that, especially in the Middle Kingdom, the same time as this site. But we really hadn't found the evidence, and that's why this site has been so important, is to really look at the scheme of things. But as, as, as Dr. Bright said, it's like these were storage areas. They took everything away with them. They didn't leave it here. It's like a mothballed military camp almost. And it's, it's just such a fascinating place because this is, these are the world's oldest seagoing ship timbers that we have. Um, there's dugouts from other places that are a little bit older and things like that. But to be able to connect the planks to one another just with wood, they, they used copper ribbons almost in a couple of places, but these aren't held together with nails. They're not planks that are nailed onto frames. These are planks that are built up like a shell, and they are um, incredibly efficient in their use of labor and wood and time and consistent over a 3,500-year period. So it's a wonderful addition to the story of what humans can do. <laughs> and I, I guess one of the intriguing elements of this is uh, my understanding is there wasn't really a basic skeleton for the, re for the construction of these ships, and it was basically uh, sort of an envisioned model of, of, of these planks and the assembly of these planks. And in the result of, of your work, um, the planks were held together by mortises? By, yes, by slips of wood we call tenons that are about, um, about a foot long, in fact, for this particular vessel that would fit between two of the planks. So each plank had about a six-inch piece of this foot-long uh, tenon in there, and these were placed about a cubit apart um, from your elbow to your fingertip pretty much, which mm -hmm. is unusual for the ancient world. And this was one of the big questions was, would a ship that was built this way actually work? And my contention has always been, um, we've got the pieces out there. They're built like this. The ship's going to work fine. <laughs> but a lot of my colleagues said, no, 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 it can't possibly work that way. You must be mistaken. But the ancient Egyptians led the way in um, by following their model as closely as possible. We were actually able to build a ship that was almost 70 feet long and displaced 20 tons of water. Um, and was, would have been able to carry a cargo of about 17 tons. Um, and the, 
other things that we found at Goasis showed that this was a small ship. We had indications that some of the ships were probably twice as large. Well, well, given given the planks, I mean, these planks were obviously very huge, and and they were beautifully crafted. And to to boil it down to basics, it was the planks that were uh, joined adjacent and and uh, vertically as well, and that in between the planks there were uh, pieces of material or fiber that no. that no, there was that was no. not it. <laughs> okay. What, what was it? So, how did how did how did uh, what separated them, and how did you fill fill in the gaps between them? Well, um, there's been a, a, a television show that's been done about the the whole project, and the dramatic point of the show was that we had to stop up some of the um, uh, the gaps between the planks, and what we were mm-hmm. doing was going to stop leaking. That was a dramatic point. <laughs> we had some problems because the wood that we got wasn't seasoned as long as we would have liked it to be before it was exposed to the hot sun. These guys were learning how to do it, and so the gaps were a little bigger than we expected. But the way that these ships are built and the way that all of the ships built in this kind of edge-to-edge joining, um, you can't stick caulking between the planks the way that we do today with our planks that are narrow and thin. Um, these right. thick planks and the rest of it, if you try to shove something in between there, you run the risk of breaking the seal between the planks and loosening it and allowing more water in. And so uh-huh. I have looked at hundreds, if not thousands, of pieces of ancient Egyptian planks from the river as well as the sea now, and there's no indication on any of them of any kind of caulking. This is still a mystery to me. I'm not satisfied. I don't think we know the answer to it. But um, what we used in the ship the, uh, that we reconstructed, Men of the Desert, was uh, linen fibers and beeswax because the Egyptians did use those kinds of things. And we found a couple of pieces of linen that, to me, looked like pieces um, that were squidged in between planks. Um, to stop gaps, and we know that the Egyptians have done this from time, you know, from probably time immemorial. Egyptians invented the sail, most of my colleagues in archaeology, terrestrial as well as maritime now agree, and um, anytime you're moving a boat along water, you're going to have some water come in. But the whole process of how this happens is fine workmanship, but it's people who are doing it in almost an assembly line way, and this is what's so extraordinary about it all. Um, uh, did Catherine, did you find in the caves any evidence of some of these materials, fibers or the beeswax or any of those materials that survived in the caves that provided any, any indications of, uh, of this construction technology or no? You mean of caulking? Yes. Just some small pieces of, um, linen that, uh, were kind of squinched up as Cheryl, um, mentioned. Uh, I, I have to say, though, I think that we have the oldest pieces of a, of a sail in the world. I think we have a piece that's got a hem on it that's a typical sail kind of hem, but it's impossible to tell. <laughs> it could have really? been somebody's. It could have been the bottom of somebody's tunic, but it's a it's <laughs> a long enough piece that you just have to look at it, and the way that it's made is familiar to sailmakers today who work with traditional means. But it's just it's it's phenomenal that we can learn so much about the past. And what we learn to me just emphasizes humans are curious. They want to go get things other people don't have and when they bring them back they have big parties. <laughs> but the ship the ship 
let it happen. And the ship was a machine that was dependable, it was reliable, it was predictable, and they had a system for building them and and uh, taking them apart, bringing them across the desert, putting them back together, sailing them off to Punt, sailing them back from Punt, full of all kinds of things. And Catherine can maybe tell you about some of the other things that may have come back from Punt. But then they would take the ships apart, clean the pieces off, some of the pieces were stored there and reused as architectural elements, as I said, to, to reinforce doorways. Others were made into ramps or, do- or walkways, and some were even cut down and made into ship's boat planks. So- and on that note, we're going to have to take one more break, and we will be back for our final segment in about a few, uh, in about a minute. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back with this very fascinating discussion on the archaeology of Egypt and the emergence of the shipbuilding and, and shipping industry generally in that part of the world. Um, we've been discussing the construction of one of the oldest ships known at this point, which was done by uh, Dr. Ward in great detail uh, based 
on the archaeological findings. I think one of the issues that I want to get into at this point is the commerce itself. Uh, we obviously know that the ships were seaworthy and, and were very efficient uh, based on, on our descriptions here that we have by our two experts. Catherine, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your excavations along the edge of the harbor and what you found that would actually document the nature of the items that were transported from uh, various parts of the world uh, to this area because it was clearly a major shipping center at, uh, at the point was certainly um, at this point in time. You said it was, and, and if you could give us a little bit of information on the chronology here. We're talking about the use of this harbor from about um, 2000 to 1750 B.C. And we estimate that there were maybe 15 expeditions uh, during this period of time. So that's not a whole lot of expeditions. They weren't going every year. Mm-hmm. And what were they bringing? What were they moving in and out, and where were they going? Any uh, any ideas on that? Well, we know they were going to Punt and, and the mines of Punt, and the evidence that we found of what they brought back consists of ebony, which was reused in some cases uh, in hars there and ended up as charcoal, but we also have several fragments of ebony sticks that were probably left as an offering in a shrine. Um, we know that ebony trees do not grow in Egypt. They grow in what is today the eastern Sudanese uh, Eritrean lowlands. Um, also, we have found evidence of obsidian, which was brought back from the southern Red Sea region. Obsidian is not found naturally in um, Egypt, and um, the deposits where it occurs are on both sides of the southern Red Sea and what is today Eritrea, and then on the other side in uh, southern Yemen. So that's uh, do, just just out of curiosity. Were you, would you think that most most of the construction of the ships and most of the commerce was it more Upper Egypt, Lower Egypt, or was it united at that point? Um, what do we know about about that? Well, the shipbuilding yard was definitely in Upper Egypt at what is today um, a town called Coptos. But we know from the study of the pottery by Sally Wallace-Jones that pottery was coming from Upper Egypt, from Lower Egypt, from the Eastern Delta. So these expeditions were organized on a nationwide basis. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, but then the uh, large ship timbers had to come from Lebanon. So, and they came directly. There's no other place where the where the cedars would certainly come from, correct? I mean, no, no cedar okay. in Egypt. Yeah. And and there's That's several right. textual references to other expeditions that went to Lebanon to get cedar, um, specifically for uh, ship timbers, and um, we see this as a tradition for quite a long time. So let me ask another question. Um, uh, Cheryl, I, I'd like to ask you this. Uh, do you have any suspicion or do you have any uh, information to indicate that there was any variability in shipbuilding? For example, did they design uh, ships that would go down the Nile versus uh, ships that would have to take more rigorous trips, say, in the Red Sea? Oh, that's a great inform- question. Um, the planks on the ships in the Red Sea were thicker than those that we have on the Nile. And they had um, one of the things that people began to do in the more modern era was to put on two layers of planking on a ship so the outside one could just be stripped off whenever it was eaten up by shipworm and replaced. 
the Egyptians had that kind of a layer built into their construction. They had up to five centimeters, up to two inches of the outside of, this, of the, the planks that could disappear without harming the ship, and that's the way that its construction was. And over and over, what we see is there's just very, very few times when the ship homes would penetrate further than that. So they had enough information about their trip and about how long it was and about what they could expect in terms of the damage from the shipworm in these warm waters um, that they could predict that. Um, the Everything is slightly larger in proportion um, in actual size than what we see um, on the riverboats, but they're the same proportions. And so that was pretty interesting to me. The Egyptians, though, on the river, I mean, when we talk about riverboats, it's not like little sailboats. They were building boats that could transport obelisks that weighed up to 1,200 tons. So they were very experienced, and they knew what they were doing. They'd been doing it for thousands of years. And the everything that we've seen at um, Gawasis in terms of the planks, not only of the ships, but also of the ship's boats, points to a very, very careful use to the materials. They're using, they're reusing, they're cutting down, and um, it, it's just a tremendous uh, opportunity to kind of get an insight into um, you've got the scribes sitting there watching and keeping track of where everything is going, and you can imagine an efficiency expert kind of designing the process. Right, right. Yeah, the scribes Catholic- were keeping records of everything. That's what's amazing to me about uh, some of the evidence we've found recorded on broken pieces of pottery there. Yeah, so, even so- at, the, at the shipyard that Catherine mentioned earlier at Guft or, or Koptos, um, they were keeping track of where a goat skin went as well right. as where recycled planks went. So, so the Egyptians were great at keeping up with, with uh, government property. <laughs> uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. Catherine, I would like to point this one at you. Um, any idea, or, and Cheryl, is for, for this matter as, as well, any idea when, when shipbuilding actually began? Well, when you're talking about shipbuilding, um, when we talk about a ship, it's something that you would spend the night on at sea in comfort. Yeah. And yeah. Um, I think that we can easily say that somewhere between the period of 2600 and 3000 B.C., the Egyptians were building uh, comfortably sized ships. Uh, the Egyptians spread the sail throughout the Mediterranean. The um, evolution of it and the, 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 the transfer of it to other cultures takes place. And um, people make it their own in ways, as well as the way the ships were put together. They make it their own, and it's fascinating to see. It's a great story. And on that note, I think we're going to have to wrap up the program. I want to express my thanks to these two wonderful scholars, Dr. Cheryl Ward and Dr. Catherine Bard, for uh, enlightening us on the maritime industry of Pharaonic Egypt. And I extend my appreciation to you. And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein, and thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.